Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Almost 800 million miles away from Earth, the moon Enceladus orbits the gas giant planet Saturn. Enceladus is tiny, only 314 miles in diameter. That's small enough to fit entirely inside the borders of Texas. Back in June, an international group of scientists announced they found evidence that suggests Enceladus has all the necessary building blocks for life, meaning this small, icy moon could be habitable. It has a global subsurface ocean that's salty, that's underneath this icy shell. That's Wall Street Journal science reporter Eileen Woodward. And past evidence from missions from NASA and other international space agencies have found five key ingredients of typical Earth life. But they hadn't found the sixth key ingredient, phosphorus, and phosphorus is sort of a very rare element. And with that last checkbox, it basically indicates that Enceladus is potentially habitable and a, a really great place in our planetary neighborhood to look for life. Island says this recent finding is evidence that life could be more common in our solar system than we once thought. And also, perhaps, on exoplanets. Those are planets found outside our solar system. In the 31 years since the first exoplanets were discovered, astronomers have found more than 5,500. They're still finding new ones. And new technology is helping scientists learn even more about them. If ocean worlds in our planetary neighborhood do seem to have conditions that are typical of Earth life, it's plausible that there are similar conditions on other ocean worlds outside of our solar system, on these extrasolar planets or exoplanets, that we should also be looking for. Take the exoplanet K218b. It's 124 light years away from Earth and was first discovered in 2015. Earlier this month, NASA announced that the James Webb Space Telescope spotted signs of carbon dioxide and methane there, which suggests it might be an ocean world. And an ocean world with all the elements for life could be habitable. But habitable for some life forms doesn't necessarily mean that humans could survive there. There's plenty of places on Earth where microbes are totally happy and we would die immediately. Chris Impey is an astronomer at the University of Arizona and author of the book Worlds Without End, Exoplanets, Habitability, and the Future of Humanity. He says what we consider habitable for life here on Earth might not be the same for other planets in our solar system, or even in the rest of the galaxy. And that could have major implications for what our understanding of life is. The uncomfortable fact of this field is that life might be so strange that it's unrecognizable. And then you, how do you define an experiment to detect it or find it? From The Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Danny Lewis. I spoke with Chris Impey about how astronomers are hunting for exoplanets and how new technology is giving them a better glimpse of far-off worlds, which could change how we search for life in our own solar system and elsewhere in the universe. Stay with us. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners.
Chris Impey, welcome to the future of everything. Pleased to be with you. People have been imagining other worlds and what they might be like for thousands of years. But we only started finding proof of planets outside our solar system, called exoplanets, in the early 1990s. Why are they so hard to find? Well, planets don't emit their own light. They reflect a little bit of the light of their star. So you're trying to detect something that's hundreds of millions or billions of times fainter than its parent star. And it's like looking for a firefly that's right there in the stadium floodlights. It's been more than 30 years since the first exoplanets were discovered, but detecting what an exoplanet's atmosphere is made of is another thing. It's really hard to do, and it's only been done for about 100 exoplanets. Why is it so important to get this data? Well, we're trying to answer an incredibly profound question about the universe, which is, is there life beyond Earth? Is the sequence of events that led to us, where biology started about 4 billion years ago, is that unique to this rock around this star in this part of the Milky Way? Everything else about the history of astronomy would suggest we're not special. But we still don't know the answer, and that's a, that's a big one. So the traditional astronomical definition of a habitable planet is one that's in the so-called Goldilocks zone. That means the planet's surface temperature is one where water is able to exist in liquid form. It's not too hot, it's not too cold. But is that too restrictive, especially since life is found in some pretty extreme environments right here on Earth? So the lesson of the Earth is that life does not need a star. We have life on Earth that exists deep in the oceans that's not part of a photosynthetic food chain. We have life inside deep rock. We have life that can handle higher than boiling point of water, lower than the freezing point of water. So the bounds on life on Earth are pretty pretty wide. We've got Europa, the icy and watery moon of Jupiter that's very far out. We have Enceladus, the little moon of Saturn that's even further out that has ice jets and subsurface liquid or water. We have Titan, which is a bizarre moon of Saturn that might have a different form of life based on methane rather than water. So the solar system has examples where there could be biology. How would you define a habitable planet? I don't even know that I can do it very well because we're kind of stuck doing the most obvious thing, which is we look for the thing we know. We look for life as we know it on this planet, when that may not be the full spectrum of what you might call biology in the universe. We look for life that uses liquid water as a medium, when that may not absolutely be true everywhere. As, so we just make these assumptions and you sort of do the experiment you can do because you have to know how to recognize it. The uncomfortable fact of this field is that life might be so strange that it's unrecognizable. And then you, how do you define an experiment to, to detect it or find it? All right. So just in our own solar system, we've got gas giants like Saturn and Jupiter. Venus is kind of like Earth if it was way hotter and had a carbon dioxide atmosphere. Plus, there are several moons that scientists think could be habitable scattered throughout the solar system. And that's a lot of variety just for our own neighborhood, so to speak. What are astronomers learning about what kinds of exoplanets are out there so far? Some of the things we're learning suggest that our solar system may not be typical. The most common type of exoplanet is actually a super-Earth. Well, we don't have a super-Earth in our solar system. So the most common type of exoplanet in the galaxy doesn't exist in our solar system. And it leaves us scratching our heads and wondering, you know, are we typical? What is a super-Earth? It's roughly two to three times Earth's size and six to eight times Earth's mass. 
And so it's a, it's a heftier version of the Earth. And it'll have a, probably a thick atmosphere. It'll almost certainly have active geology. They're probably super habitable. So they're of great interest. They're actually a little easier to study than Earth's themselves. There aren't any missions planned to go to exoplanets, but space agencies are planning several missions to moons in the outer regions of our solar system. One of these, the European Space Agency's Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, or JUICE, mission, launched in April and should reach the planet in 2031. What does this have to do with habitable exoplanets or exomoons? Well, the JUICE mission is going to inspect uh, several moons of Jupiter, but the, probably the most exciting one to most people is Europa. It's not going to like land on the surface or drill through the ice. It drops a probe and then sniffs the gas or ice that splashes off and looks for organic material and possibly life. Because the outer solar system doesn't get a lot of attention. It takes a decade to plan a mission, a decade for it to get out there. They're all expensive, multi-billion dollar missions. So we just don't go there very often. So this is a valuable one. Let's put some numbers on it. The JUICE mission is going to cost about $1.7 billion by the time it's complete. And another mission that NASA is working on, the Europa Clipper mission, which is just going to study one of Jupiter's moons, Europa, is scheduled to launch in 2024. And that will probably cost at least $5 billion once everything's all said and done. What do you say to people who wonder why we should spend so much money on missions like these? You have to put it in the scheme of things. Uh, when the public is asked what fraction of their tax dollar goes to NASA, they always overestimate. You know, they say, oh, it's a dime or a nickel of my tax dollar. Well, it's not. It's like a few tenths of a cent. And only a fraction of that goes to planetary science and the things we're talking about. It's really a very small amount of what we spend, especially on military things. For context, in the 2023 fiscal year, the U.S. Department of Defense budget was more than $816 billion. NASA was given $25.4 billion. That's a lot smaller, but it's still a lot of money. So when we're talking about missions then to Jupiter and its moons, what would we have to learn to make these missions worth it? You know, we sort of want to answer the question in the most direct way and say, yes, there's microbes, there's DNA, and it's, it's either exactly like our form of life or different. Either way, that's interesting. Um, but really, we're just iterating towards that answer. These missions are not profound enough. You, you just can't send a full biology lab to the outer solar system. So you have to put a compact package together and learn as much as you can and sort of just see if the ingredients for life are there. And so what might we learn from studying some of these moons around Jupiter that, you know, could be applied to the search for exomoons outside our solar system? Planetary scientists think there are probably a dozen habitable locations in the solar system which includes the objects we've talked about, but also some of the moons of Uranus and Neptune further out that we don't know much about, maybe even Pluto itself. These are places where there's no liquid water, of course, on the surface, but under the pressure of ice and rock and heated by the rocks from the interior, you can have liquid water. You've got organic material, the local energy source, that's all you need for life. So if you have a dozen habitable spots in one solar system, but only one habitable planet, Earth, then that's an order of magnitude more places where there could be life in the universe. Just ahead, how new technology is helping astronomers take a close look at distant exoplanets, including next-generation telescopes that can help block out the light of faraway stars. Stay with us. High inflation has impacted many of us. But what happens when prices go up 55, 67, or even 276 percent? 
It makes living more costly. It eats into your paycheck. At the end of the day, the salary itself, it's not enough. And money quickly loses value. You can't save, you can't do anything. Check out our complete series on extreme world inflation from A to Z, from What's News, plus other exclusive content on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. All right, so in recent years, especially now that scientists are starting to get data back from the James Webb Space Telescope, there's been a lot more evidence that exoplanets are more common than once thought. What does that mean for our understanding of the universe if there are just so many more planets out there? Well, it it says that the process where a star forms and the spinning disk collapses and there's debris left over that gradually accretes into planets, that's a standard process. In astrophysics, we'd be surprised if there weren't planets around other stars. And the question is, what are the demographics of those exoplanets? And since we are rather obsessive about the question of biology, we kind of home in on the Earth-like planets or the super-Earths. Most of the detection techniques used to identify exoplanets were indirect. So what are some of the technologies that astronomers are working on to make it easier to find these exoplanets in the future? The technologies that we now need are the technologies that will perfectly extinguish that very bright star and leave behind the feeble reflected light of the planet. And then when you can do that, you can smear that light into a spectrum and look at the atmosphere and what it's made of. Most of that will be done by the huge telescopes that are all under construction. They're all 20 to 30 to 40 meter telescopes, and they are built to do that experiment. And then maybe by a next generation of space telescopes, you have to design and build your optics really well within the telescope to occult the central star and blot it out. And then you can extract the little signal from the reflected light of the star. What does that mean for us here on Earth? It's an interesting dichotomy. Either life on Earth was a unique accident and we're alone in the universe, or we're not. Um, So we're really just trying to look for other forms of life beyond Earth, and we're looking for the most simple forms of life, microbes, bacteria. And the only way we really have a handle on simple forms of life is when they're pervasive enough to alter a planetary atmosphere completely. And that happened on the Earth because the oxygen we breathe was produced by microbes billions of years ago, and there's one part in five of our air. That's a pretty dramatic imprint on an atmosphere. And so we'll do the same kind of experiment with exoplanets. We'll look for oxygen, we'll look for ozone, we'll look for methane, and we'll look for water vapor, of course, because we want to know that there's water since life on Earth all depends on water. What are the chances that we'll find other forms of life on exoplanets or exomoons? Well, I would say it's at a very interesting stage. We've already found planets that are as close to Earth as we're likely to find. And so this experiment of inspecting the atmosphere and looking for alteration due to biology, that's a game that probably will succeed or fail in the next five to seven years. It's not going to be a clean, crisp answer because these spectra are going to be kind of ratty, kind of noisy a little ambiguous to interpret. You're not going to get the smoking gun of life. It's not going to be that simple. One example probably won't convince you because there's always uncertainty. And so you'll probably want six or eight or 10. And once you get up to that number, if you find nothing on any of them, and they were all very habitable as far as you knew, that life on Earth could survive these environments, then you're going to start to think, well, maybe what happened on Earth was kind of unique or a fluke or special. And if we find many or several 
from that first sample, then game on. We have a whole new field of science, and then you're really excited. And then the question you want to ask is, are they the same as life on Earth, or is it some different variation on that? Does natural selection, as articulated by Darwin, does that operate on these other worlds? Do they use the same replicating molecule, DNA and RNA? Do they organize themselves in cells the same way our biological life forms do? We have all these questions. And of course, if you have microbial life in a lot of places, then why wouldn't you have intelligent technological life? So the sheer abundance of habitable worlds, it makes it incredibly unlikely that we're alone. But microbes, you know, front page headline, the general public will probably get excited for a week and then it'll fade into the news cycle. <laughs> scientists, scientists will be excited for a long time. That'll change everything. It'll change biology. It'll change astronomy. But it still begs that second question. If you've got microbes and you know that on Earth that eventually led to us, how often do you get something like us? And if it's life that, you know, doesn't look anything like us, I mean... Um, how would we even recognize that, you know, as life? I think that's the, exactly the right question. And it's an unfortunate question because, you, you know, you, you look for the things you can detect. So it's quite possible that alien forms of biology will be inscrutable, unrecognizable, so different that we're not designing the right experiment to even look for them. Um, that's even been true of Mars. People have argued, going back to the, the pioneer, going back to the first Mars missions, uh, that those early life detection experiments only looked for terrestrial metabolism mechanisms. And if it had been some slightly bizarre mechanism, they wouldn't have found life. And so their experiment was, the null result of the experiment was not meaningful. So aside from whether or not life has evolved elsewhere in the universe, what else can we learn from studying exoplanets? Well, planets change over cosmic time. And so there are natural forces that change the atmosphere and the interior of a planet. And so exoplanets are all little object lessons in how planets like ours evolve. And so I think we'll learn a lot about the sort of evolution of habitable worlds, independent of what the human footprint on a habitable world is. And that's going to be helpful. So I think it's safe to say that I'm never going to be able to visit an exoplanet in my lifetime. And Chances are, probably neither will my kids or my grandkids, right? It's really cool to know that there are these other planets out there in the universe, but do these discoveries really change anything for us here on Earth? I think they will only change something if we find intelligent and technological life elsewhere. That could change something, because then you're communicating through light. And you're not imagining that you would travel there because the distances are so large. You know, if there are microbes elsewhere that may or may not inform us about terrestrial biology, I mean, it would to a biologist, but it may not affect how we live on this planet. If we find intelligent life, of course, we got a lot of questions to ask. University of Arizona astronomy professor Chris Impey. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ogenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. This episode was produced by me, Danny Lewis. Our fact checker is Aparna Nathan. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers and wrote our theme music. Catherine Millsop is our supervising producer. Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer. Scott Salloway and Chris Zinsley are the deputy editors. And Falana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. Like the show? Tell your friends and leave us a five-star review on your favorite platform. Thanks for listening.